Hey, welcome to Journey Through Scripture, day 17. Today we're going to be in Genesis chapters 34 and 35, uh, Psalm 10, and Matthew chapter 12, verse 46, through chapter 13, verse 17. So Genesis chapter 34 is, uh, of course, a very very disturbing chapter. Um, it's painful sometimes to read about things like this in um, in the Bible, but they are reality. They have been a reality. These kinds of things have been a reality for humanity for quite a long time. Uh, the Bible does not try to cover them up, to cover up how ugly uh, many of the things that we do are. And, um, well, let's, let's take a look at, at what Genesis 34 is about. So Genesis 34 focuses on uh, the daughter of Jacob, Dinah. And Dinah, you might recall, is the daughter of Leah. So, um, in fact, note how verse 1 reminds us of that. Because the thing that we're going to start seeing more and more of is that Jacob succumbs to the same kind of favoritism that his father did. This kind of uh, trivial reason, uh, trivial, um, hard to explain uh, preference for one child over the other. And you remember the kind of hurt that that caused in Jacob's home. Jacob did not obviously react to that uh, in the best way. And... Uh, but now Jacob is replicating it in his own household. He loves Rachel. He served for her. Had things gone the way that he wanted to them, wanted them to in Pat and Aram, he um, he likely would not have married Leah at all. But as it is, uh, Leah has brought several children into his life, and uh, Jacob is is uh, constantly from here on forth in the biblical narrative, kind of putting them behind the sons of Rachel. And to add insult to injury, this is a uh, this is especially a, an affront because he kind of is ignoring his firstborn children. Uh, the children of Rachel come last. Joseph is born second to last. Uh, and here... Today, uh, Benjamin is finally born. And those are the two sons of Rachel. So this favoritism uh, is going to cause a lot of trouble. And this is the first, I think, real place where we start seeing that. So Dinah, who, by the way, is the daughter of Leah, verse 1 reminds us, uh, went out to see the women of the land. So she goes out, there's peaceful intentions, trying to build relationships, um, to, with with the other women who live in the land, and um, oh, one other thing, by the way, I, I, I'm not sure we're supposed to take this as meaning that Dinah is the only daughter that Jacob had, although it is possible, um, of course. I just think that uh, she's mentioned here, um, and that's all we could say. Um, but yeah, so she goes out to see the women of the land, and. Um, a man named Shechem um, sees, or Shechem, let's just call him Shechem, sees, uh, sees her, and uh, he is identified as, as the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land. 
so he's he's living in a city that's also called Shechem, uh, uh, and uh, yeah, so it's it's unclear if this is uh, you know would have actually been his name or not, but um, uh, it's the name of the city. It's a well-known biblical city, uh, but at this point, it's it's in it's inhabited by individuals who are called Hivites, not the later Israelites, of course. And so Shechem sees Dinah, and uh, and then you have these other three disturbing verbs, just like how 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 uh, you know one after the other they ca- they come here in verse two. He sees her, and then he seized her, and laid with her, and humiliated her. Um, just kind of like going down from bad to worse. And um, I don't think it's any mystery as to what that implies. And then in the aftermath of this, he actually ends up quite attached to her. He says he loves her. Uh, and this is a little bit um, a little bit of like a disturbing parody almost of what we saw with uh, with Isaac and Rebecca, where their relationship was this was love and it was pure. and you know she she took she went down off of the the camel and she wrapped her put the veil on her face and Isaac who was in the field comes out to meet her welcomes him into his mother's her into his mother's tent loves her is married to her and they 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 get married here Shechem rapes Dinah and then falls in love with her and he goes to and and, and just just an additional thing that underscores um, what a peach this guy is is how he goes and kind of bosses around his own dad, right? So he goes to Hamor and he says, "Get me this girl for my wife." Um, yeah, that's a real nice way to speak to your dad, <laughs> but it just kind of shows what a piece of work this guy is. Um, and so, um, uh, verse five, that paragraph is significant. So Jacob hears what's going on, and all of his sons are out in the field tending the flocks. So her brothers are 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 not there. And Hamor comes and he basically um, proposes this marriage uh, uh, marriage relationship between the sons the family of Jacob and the family and the people, the inhabitants of Shechem. Uh, at this point, the sons of Jacob come in from the field, and you could just, uh, you know, picture this: um, the father of the man who has who has raped uh, your this 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 woman is there <laughs> with the woman's father, proposing an ongoing relationship between him and and between the two families, and now the brothers come in. Her brothers come in, who are kind of like looking at dad in unbelief. Uh, what is he doing, even talking to this guy? And um, and Hamor makes his um, makes his case. The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Make marriages with us. You know, dwell in the land, trade in it. You'll this will be a further way for you to become ensconced in, ensconced in this land. And also, by the way, I'll give you an awesome bride price. Just whatever you want. Let me know what it is. Uh, just, just give me the young woman uh, uh, to 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 be the uh, the wife of Shechem. And Shechem is here as well, and he speaks up to that effect. So, 
Um, the, the, the shocking thing here, however, is that you've got uh, the sons of Jacob coming in and standing there as this conversation is happening. You've got Hamor speaking. You've got Shechem speaking. But who's completely silent is Jacob. You have no idea what he's doing right now. Um, his daughter has been raped. And he's standing there hearing these guys out, hearing out their proposal. And because of his inaction, his sons, in particular, the sons of Leah, Dinah's full brothers, not just her half-brothers, uh, decide to take matters into their own hands because Jacob decides not to um, because, I mean, it, it might be a passive streak in him, but also there is this idea that she is a daughter of Leah and she is loved less than the children of Rachel. And um, and now this is manifested itself like this. So the brothers come up with this idea and they say, well, let's do it. Let's do it, Shechem. Let's do it, Hamor. And, um, but here's the deal. We need you to, to be circumcised. Um, this is a, a deal breaker for us. And if you do that, then, um, then indeed we will form this relationship, this ongoing relationship between your city slash village and our family. And, uh, so the deal breaker is that they need to circumcise all their males. And, uh, I'm not sure what kind of sales pitch Hamor had he's a, he's pretty much a ruler of the city, so probably anything anything goes. And by the way, when we say city, Shechem is basically like a glorified village at this point. Um, it's right around this time, the uh, you know in the archaeological record, the Middle Bronze Age, the beginning, right around like 1900 or so uh, BC, that uh, it does start to become to become built up and filled and turned into a city. So this is this is a fledgling city. This is not this is not a sprawling metropolis. It's a glorified village. And um so the men agreed to do this and they circumcised. They are all circumcised. And while they're healing on the third day, um and and vulnerable and at peace, Simeon and Levi, again, two full brothers of of uh, of Dinah, and the birth order is important. Remember, they are from the initial two of uh, the initial four, rather group of four that um, that Leah bore. So Jacob's first sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. So here, numbers two and three enter the city and put the entire male population of it to the sword. Uh, they kill all of them, and then the the rest of the sons plunder the city. And uh, Jacob kind of freaks out at that. This is not saying that this is a good thing. It, it's more of like, uh, see what happens when you fail to do, uh, to, 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 to stick up for your, for your daughter, when you fail to seek righteousness and justice. Uh, exactly the thing that Jacob is supposed to be teaching his, his children about righteousness and justice. This is one of the most unjust things that could happen. And and now because Jacob, who's supposed to be the leader here, has abrogated that duty, his sons have stepped in and have responded with this Lamech style. Remember Lamech from, from Genesis 4? Um, this over-the-board, over-the-top vengeance. Because as it is certainly wrong to, to lay with a woman against her will and force her, 
um, it definitely does not improve matters if in response to that you slaughter um, a large number of human beings, some of whom probably didn't really have anything to do with it. So this is a, this is a not, not a happy story. And Jacob, as I said, freaks out about this at the end of the chapter. And he comes to them and he says, you, you know, we're, we, we have a lot of people. We don't have that many people. Uh, the Canaanites are going to hear about this and we're going to become a stench to the people of the land. And now we are even more vulnerable than we were. And their response is very much, very apt. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? They don't call him, they don't call her his daughter, his own daughter. Um, they're kind of like, we're the ones who care for Dinah. She's, she's the, the familial uh, relationship we're going to focus on are ours to hers because apparently, Jacob, apparently dead, your relationship to her doesn't really matter that much to you. Uh, so indeed, it is a very, very sad thing. And um, yeah, so then chapter 35 basically details some random travels through the land where they go to some very important places. Uh, Jacob revisits Bethel. Um, Jacob uh, goes to uh, what is uh, what is currently, uh, well, in, in the Bible, it was currently Hebron later on, uh, Kiryat Arba. Um, but the first thing that happens, you know, as, as they go to, to do these things where they're going to go and they're going to build altars to God, they're going to worship the Lord, um, uh, the first thing he tells them is another disturbing thing. So, okay, guys, we're going to go on a road trip. Um, we're going to, we're going to go there, but, uh, oh yeah. Um, put away the foreign gods that are, are among you and then purify yourselves. And the reader is kind of like, wait, what? <laughs> There's foreign gods among Jacob's family. Uh, disturbing. Uh, I did. We did talk about this a little bit a few days ago. That it's unclear how monotheistic um, this family would have been, uh, and I think an important thing to realize in the Bible is that uh, the Israelites have a lot of trouble with worshiping only the Lord, and it's very open about that. And sometimes it's just very matter-of-fact like that. And so the fact that the religion that they're supposed to practice is monotheistic, that is, that there is only one God, only one being who is who is God, um, and there is none beside him, um, that was not always embraced by the actual people. And we see that in both the Bible and the archaeological record of Israel, where you have lots of little goddess figurines and things like that that have been excavated all over the place. And um, in fact, one particularly disturbing inscription, uh, this is from a site called Kuntilat Ajrud, has some jars, some pithoi, uh, with uh, pictures of deities on them, uh, accompanied by some writing. And you, you can easily... Google this and see what this picture looks like. This is, I believe it's an 8th century, early 8th century drawing. And accompanying the drawing is this text that says, um, Blessed be you by Yahweh of Samaria and his Asherah. In other words, this, this female consort goddess that is 
so notoriously worshipped alongside of the God of Israel that she would just casually be known as his Asherah, his... And so there, there's... I guess what I'm trying to say is there's a difference between the biblical, idealistic biblical religion, uh, that is the things that, that God, the religion that God wants us to aspire to and holds us accountable towards, but then you also have to bring that into um, conversation with the reality of human sinfulness and Israel's willingness to, to worship other gods. So that's something to be mindful of. Um uh, an additional, a few additional important things happen in this chapter. Um, so, first of all, um, Jacob's final son Benjamin is born, and uh, Rachel. He is a he is the second son of Rachel, Joseph being the first, um, and Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife, and she actually dies during the during the labor, and um, so. His name is initially called. He's he's given two names, um, but as she, her soul was departing, for she was dying. That's verse eighteen. She called his name Ben Oni, and uh, Ben Oni uh, means son of my sorrow or son of my affliction. But his father called him Ben Yamin, which is uh, Benjamin, of course, um, meaning son of the right hand. Uh, this is the tribe of Benjamin is very interesting. Um, there are actually um, other Benjaminites in the uh, ancient record, particularly in texts from the city of Mari, which would have been a little bit earlier than this. And it's not to say that this is the same Benjamin, but son of the right hand is not that unique of a thing uh, of, of like a statement uh, or a concept. In fact, the, the Benjaminites are, are located in the south. They're just to the north of Judah, um, to the west of the northern tip of the, uh, the Dead Sea, um, and just south of Ephraim. So they're pretty far in the south. That is uh, where they eventually settle. And uh, the right hand, so if you think of, the, of a compass, okay, so think of a, think of a compass, north, south, east, west. What do we think of as kind of the up direction, the direction that if there's any, if there's one on the compass, this will be it. Uh, we think of north. Uh, the Israelites um, and, and several different people in the peoples in the ancient Near East uh, conceived of east as the point from which everything else is is uh, is oriented. And of course, the sun rises in the east. So the way that they would have thought of the map of Israel, interestingly, would have been like us turning it 90 degrees to the left, um, you know, rotating it. Um, so son of the right hand, the right hand is what direction then? If that's how you're oriented, it's in the south. Uh, that's why the word for left, semol, also sometimes means north. Um, the, the word for behind, achare, means uh, west. Uh, or sometimes even Yom, the sea, the Mediterranean, that which is behind us when we're looking east, means east. So Ben Yamin, uh, Benjamin, son of my right hand, um, a dweller who, whose tribe will come to dwell in the south. Just a little interesting little rabbit trail there. Uh, but yes, Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin. And uh, this is in the vicinity of Bethlehem. This is the significance, the first time this significant city is mentioned. And uh 
Um, Ephrath Benjamin uh, is the um, name that it, it bore before Bethlehem. Uh, recall that the prophecy in of Jesus's birth in Micah five two um, refers to Bethlehem this way. Um, I'm flipping through an entirely different direction of my Bible here, but just want to say it the right way. Um, so, uh, but that's where the city begins to become very significant. Uh, of course, as the city where David is born and the city where his offspring will be born. So Micah five two. Uh, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. This, of course, is fulfilled in Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Um, but So this is the naming of that. This is why it's called Ephrathah, Beth, uh, Bethlehem, in that prophecy. Um, a few other significant things. Uh, Reuben now, uh, in verse 22, it's almost like a little passing note here, um, laid with his father's concubine, Bilhah. Now, Reuben is the first son, the son of Leah. Bilhah is Rachel's uh, maid servant who becomes, so she's kind of on that side of the family. So it's uh, there's some dis- familial distance, but not a lot. And so one of the interesting things, and I guess I guess we should... I should pause this, and I should pause to talk about this now. I wasn't sure when I was going to bring it up, and I'll probably mention it again because it is very significant at this point. Think of how the covenant transmission has gone. Right, it's been one son, not the other. So it is uh, first Abraham, and not uh, not not the other sons of of Terah. It is uh, Isaac, not Ishmael. It is Jacob, not Esau. But now you have 12 sons born, all of whom are kind of on a level playing field, all of whom God has not made any kind of prediction to Jacob, like through this one, the covenant will be transmitted. So it kind of like takes a different turn now, right? Because there's no excluded from the covenant son. Um, And... So, so you're kind of like, well, now we've got 12, and 12 inheritors of the covenant uh, understand how this is going to affect, you know, the bringing about of this great nation. Um, but if we're wondering then, well, well, what do we do now? What are the questions to ask now? The question of prominence comes to mind. Among those who are all equally heirs of the covenant, who is going to be the prominent one? And uh, we, we suspect that the uh, that Joseph and perhaps Benjamin, right? Because we've seen this overturning of primogenitor, the overturning of the preference for the firstborn. Um, but uh, the firstborn has not been wiped off the map here. Um, and so if we start going in order of sons and saying, well, which one is going to have preeminence among the brothers? You've got Here's the here's the initial birth order, okay? You've got Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and then Judah. And so far, just now, we saw chapter 35, verse 22, Reuben um, kind of jumps the ship, right? He just does something detestable and is shows himself to be unworthy of preeminence among his brothers. And if you doubt uh, this spin on things, uh, this is exactly what Jacob says in his final blessing of his life on, on in chapter 49. And then, so then who's up next? Simeon, 
and then Levi. And what has happened with them? Well, they, because of Jacob's passivity and his uh, apathy towards his daughter's rape, they take matters into their own hands, slaughter the entire city of Shechem. And um, so they are men of blood. And then you have Judah up next. And what's going to happen with Judah? And we'll actually, we'll see that in the coming days. Um, okay, uh, those I think are the, the other people who pass away in this chapter. Um, uh, um, uh, Jay, uh, Rebecca's nurse, Deborah, dies. Uh, and also at the end of the chapter, Isaac breathes his last Okay, so that's it for the, our readings from Genesis for the day. Let's talk a little bit about Psalm 10. Uh, again, we're doing the whole thing today. Um, Psalm 10, interestingly, we've gotten, we've gotten um, used to some Psalms of David, but here we have a Psalm that is technically anonymous, um, stuffed in among other Psalms of David that will, will follow this, 11, 12, 13, 14, and so on. Um, but here we have something of an anonymous Psalm, and I think the way that it begins illustrates a point I made a, a couple uh, a couple episodes back about the Psalms call for some for us to put on our thinking cap about the way in which they function as Scripture. Uh, in other words, and this is true of other parts of biblical literature, right? Like just because it tells us that like a character says something, it doesn't necessarily mean that thing is true and worthy of belief. Maybe he's saying something horrible or something untrue. And I think that's obvious when we read narrative, but think about the Psalms too. So the Psalm, you're almost reading someone else's prayer journal and places, right? And it's this idea that you're given a picture of the emotional spectrum that people go through in their lives of worshiping the Lord with all the messiness that is our lives. And so the reason I say this is because look at how it begins. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Um, Would we want to incorporate that into a theological statement, right? Or into our beliefs that, you know, God is omnipotent, he's omnipresent, he's omniscient, and he also hides himself in times of trouble. No, this is this is how the psalmist feels. This is and 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 um, you know so that's why I'm always trying to be a little bit careful about like what parts of psalms or other poetic literature or in general you want to be careful about like what is the text actually saying like what what are we what is what are we being asked to believe here and um, it. It's not the hugest thing uh, to get your head around here in chapter 10, but it does become significant in other places, and, and we will see that. But um, but here is this another one of these imprecatory psalms against the arrogant, the wicked. Um, and here in particularly, this the, the idea that they ignore God as they go about their dastardly deeds. Um, all his thoughts are, there is no God, verse 4. Um, and then you go down a little bit further. He, uh, verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Those are the, that is the attitude, kind of like the prerequisite in one's heart to be able to, to do things that you know God doesn't want you to do. Um, and it's the idea of the hiddenness of God. And in fact, what's interesting, I think, about that is how that's connected to the psalmist's own cry in verse 1, right? Oh my gosh. So the psalmist, 
Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourselves in times of trouble? The wicked then um, is talked about as kind of like what he does in response to this very human feeling of distance between us and God. And he concludes from that that God is actually hiding. God actually does not see. He will not hold me account. Where Where is God? Where is he? I, I don't know where he is. In fact, maybe even there is no God. So that's what he takes from the fact that sometimes God does feel distant, even if he is in reality not, even if perhaps it's we who are distant from him. But then in verse 12 and following, you see um, the righteous kind of in what he does with this is he turns in trust to the Lord to judge the wicked. Arise, O God, arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say, in his heart you will not call to account? But you see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been a helper of fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Right? So I know based on the fact that like you have a track record of being the God of the fatherless that even though you seem distant, you are not and you do care, oh God. And um, and this is, uh, and so it ends in this the, a few short stanzas of praise to God for for being a God who who justly um, loves the fatherless. Okay, um, let's talk a little bit about the passages in Matthew. Um, so, starting, starting chapter twelve, verse forty six today. Um, this is towards the end of chapter twelve. Um, while Jesus is still speaking. And again, remember the setting. These are these scribes and the Pharisees, this contention that he has with them. Um, first about having healed these, this um, blind and mute and demon-possessed man, uh, and then leading them to to say he's he's doing this by the power of the prince of demons, by Beelzebul. And, uh, and then Jesus kind of rebuking them in several different ways, as we saw yesterday. Um, and while he's still kind of going back and forth with these these guys who are now asking him for a sign as if they didn't just see one, um, it's told to him that his mother and his brothers are outside. And Jesus turns and he says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And he stretches out his hand towards the disciples and says, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And this is this other idea of this kingdom value that we've seen already about the idea that even the closest familial bonds um, are not as real, in a sense, and are not as significant as the bonds that we have with other children of God. I might be a child of John Becker, that's my dad, right? But even more importantly, I am a child of God, and therefore the relationships that I have through that um, are, are, are kingdom relationships. And it is, again, this idea of new wine. You need new wineskins. Um, then Jesus gives the parable of the sower, and this is a very familiar parable. And interestingly, the way the parable of the sower is laid out is very unconventional. So first of all, most of Jesus' parables are pretty short. This one is quite long. Um, and this one, actually, Jesus gives an explanation of all its elements, which oddly are, is in our reading for tomorrow, so I won't thoroughly explain. But for now, 
The other feature is that between sandwiched between the parable and the explanation is kind of a, a reflection on why Jesus speaks in parables in the first place. So this is a parable about parables in a sense. So Jesus uh, the, tells about this sower who goes out and sows seed on the ground and the seed, some of it falls along the path and is eaten immediately by birds. Some of it goes into rocky soil and it is uh, it, it doesn't have any root, so it dies quickly and uh, the sun scorches it. And then others fall among thorns and other kinds of weeds and it, it's, it's choked away by them and kind of nothing comes of it. And then other comes on other um, seed falls on good soil and it produces a, a um, an exponential yield. But then the disciples are like, what, what's up with all these parables? Why are we talking in parables? Why not, more, why not more clearly? And you have this very challenging way that Jesus responds to it. So he says, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Remember how God, Jesus had placed this, um, this, this, the priority of um, on God, right? He's like, I praise you, Father, that you haven't revealed these things to the wise and the understanding, but rather, Lord, um, all things have been handed over to me by you, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Son except the the Son, and anyone whom the to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him, and um, and and so. This idea that, yeah, their hearts have been opened up, but that's not true for everyone. And then he says, this, from the one who has not, um, for to the one who has, more will be given. So some knowledge has been given to you, more will be given to you. But the one who doesn't have knowledge, and it's not God's fault that he doesn't. That's the important thing here. It is their obstinate, stubborn hearts. Notice how stupid the Pharisees have seen in this last dialogue with Jesus, that that um, he he's healing these people in front of their eyes, and they're like, oh, it's it's Satan who's doing this. And he's and they do this thing, and then they're like, uh, you know what, maybe if we see a sign, we can believe you. And they're like, what, you just saw a bunch of signs, right? These are people who are willfully shutting the doors of their hearts towards Jesus. And, um, and so to those, they have not, and even what they have will be taken away. And this is why I speak in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then he says, he gives his own fulfillment passage. Remember, Matthew is usually the one who says this, but here now Jesus says this, and he references this, one of the hardest things I think that's said in scripture, frankly, and this is in the commissioning of Isaiah the prophet, when Isaiah's like, how long am I supposed to speak to the, uh, to the inhabitants of Judah? And, you know, here's his happy coronet, his happy ministry commissioning. God's like, you know what? Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, you know, like you're going to be doing this and it's going to fall on deaf ears. And, and so, and this is part of what Isaiah, of what God says to him in his commissioning. He says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Notice that word, lest, and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. 
I thought God wanted people to turn. I what, what do you mean? Uh, oh, like God forbid they should see and understand and turn from their sin and be healed. Why is such an extreme statement from God at the commissioning of Isaiah? Why such a strong read on what's going on in the hearts of the unbelieving Jewish establishment by Jesus? It's because their hearts are so hard that the only kind of message that would that would that they would hear that they would see that would make them understand that would make them get right with God would be a message that wasn't true would be a message that was soft that skirted around their sin and skirted around the way that God wanted them to deal with it that's the kind of message that would that 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 this dull of hearing people would actually hear and but you're a messenger of God you're called to speak the truth and you can expl- expect the sinful heart to be closed um, in response to it. And then Jesus finishes, and we'll finish with this. Blessed are your eyes, though, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. All right, tomorrow I guess we'll look at kind of the part two of this where Jesus then explains the parable of the sower. Uh, But until then, thank you for joining us and uh, keep up with your Bible reading. And um, I look forward to being with you tomorrow. Until then, God bless. Bye-bye.